We will be reading from Numbers chapter 11. This is the episode in the life of Israel as they have left Mount Sinai. They've spent a year there, been through many different situations. It seems as though every other page you turn to, they do something wrong and are judged and repent. Do something wrong, they're judged and repent over and over again. And in Numbers chapter 11, they are on the cusp of sending the 12 spies into the land to spy out the land. And this gives us a a good glimpse of what is going on in the hearts of the people and what is going on in the heart of Moses. I want to pay special attention to the last three or four verses of this passage. But follow along as I read aloud. Now the people became like those who complain of calamity in the ears of Yahweh. And Yahweh heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Terabah, because the fire of Yahweh burned among them. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is dried up. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar, and boil it in the pot, and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled greatly, and it was evil in the sight of Moses. That's an interesting statement. So Moses said to Yahweh, why have you allowed this evil toward your slave? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who gave birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing baby to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people, because it is too heavy for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Yahweh therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and take them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with me. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take, this, I will take of the Spirit which is upon you, and will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it alone." 
and say to the people, Set yourselves apart as holy for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the ears of Yahweh, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for it was good for us in Egypt. Therefore Yahweh will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten, nor twenty, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected Yahweh, who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever go out from Egypt? But Moses said, The people among who I I am are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And Yahweh said to Moses, Is Yahweh's power limited? Now you will see whether my word will happen for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of Yahweh. Also he commanded 70 men of the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to them. And he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the people of Yahweh were prophets, that Yahweh would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Let us pray. Father, we are blessed We are overjoyed. We are excited to be gathered together with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. That we might receive from you what you have designed for us this day. We do not come before any man's idea of God. We come before you as the God that you have revealed yourself to be. Indeed, as we have already sung, great is the love that you have for us as your people. Great is the provision that you have made for us. Great are the provisions that you have for us in the future. Our prayer is much like that of what Moses desired. We pray that your spirit would come and move in the hearts of every person in this place. To accomplish your work first in in every heart that is here, bringing some to Christ bringing some closer to Christ, growing and and maturing us in the faith.
And that your spirit would come and accomplish what only you can accomplish in making us salt and light and ambassadors of Christ in this world. Lord, that is a monumental desire, a monumental petition. It is an impossible petition from a man's perspective, but we lay it before the feet of the one for whom nothing is even difficult. And pray that you will accomplish the impossible here this day and every day moving forward. Be honored by our time. Bless your people through our time. We come boldly to you knowing that you hear our prayer because we pray it in the name that is above every other. The name in which all heaven and earth and all in between will one day bow. The only name among men through which we must be saved. It is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. You know, one of, the, one of the startling things in that scripture reading this morning is how the Israeli people looked at their slavery in Egypt as they, they remembered their slavery with such fondness. Maybe it's been that case in your life that maybe you've You've prayed for something that you didn't, you didn't get from the Lord. You got a no answer to your prayer. Maybe if you had gotten what you wanted, you would have rather go back to the way things were before. But I don't know of any believer that has ever been brought into the kingdom of God's dear son that wanted to go back. We talk about those days never with fondness, never with glibness. We speak of those days outside of Christ with great agony. And... It is, it is the Lord's blessing on an unworthy people that we all experience as believers. And it should create in our heart a desire to know and serve him more. It should create a desire for us to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And it should create a desire in our heart to hear the word of God rightly divided Amen. and unleashed out on our lives and our hearts that he might be honored and we might be forever changed. So take your copy of God's Word and open with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I told you when we began to undertake the Gospel of John that I had some trepidation. Uh, I was a little bit nervous because of the great accolades that this, this Gospel gets from great preachers from every generation. And it has been no less than than everything that I could have possibly anticipated in, in its glory and in what it has uh, delineated for us from the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have another, another Holy Spirit-inspired text here to begin together today in John chapter 3. We have seen the Lord, we've seen John's prologue as he has described the Lord Jesus Christ, and what his ministry would be. We've seen the forerunner in John the Baptist. We've, we've seen the Lord come and inaugurate his ministry, and we've seen him come and cleanse the temple. And he has this extended conversation with Nicodemus, the most religious man that ever lived. And he has given maybe one of the most well-known and clearest depictions of the gospel. And how a man comes to Christ in faith, how a man is saved. And we come now to the last mention of John the Baptist, what John the Baptist has to say, the last thing that John records of John the Baptist, the forerunner, declaring Christ 
to the world. And he has a conversation with his disciples, and he opens his heart for us a little bit here. We get a glimpse into the heart of this great man. You, you may be like I am and, and really like to read biographies of, of churchmen in years gone by, understanding what made them tick. If, if you can get your hands on biographies that were written by Ian Murray, Ian Murray is a great biographer, and he doesn't just tell you the life and times of the person. He gives you a glimpse into the heart of these people, what made them tick. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Spurgeon, he's already written one on, on John MacArthur. I assume that he will amend that posthumously for, uh, for MacArthur and, and giving us a glimpse into what makes these men tick and what John the disciple the apostle has written for us here from the Holy Spirit, gives us a glimpse into the heart of the man that Jesus said was the greatest man who ever lived. Of men born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So looking into the heart and, and to the philosophy of ministry that John the Baptist had, getting to see that is going to be of great relevance to you and I today especially of great relevance to you and I who are believers here today. This should be the overarching, overwhelming compulsion of every believer, is what John the Baptist has to say in the last verse that we will read today. I'm going to read verses 22 through 30. And as I read this, I want you to to keep in mind a, a few words. The first of these words is the word ministry. We throw the word ministry around. He's in the ministry. He performed this ministry. There's ministry. We just use words and we kind of have an idea. Each of us maybe have a little bit different idea of what the, the ministry looks like. Uh, we, we say of men that he's been called into the ministry. I don't know how that differs from any other believer because every believer has been called into the ministry of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You may be called to preach, you may be called to teach, you may be called to pastor. There are different aspects and and different facets of said calling, but all of us are called into the ministry of the Word of God. In our homes, in our family, and in the world as we go and interact. And obviously within the flock as he has given uh, apostles, prophets, and pastor teachers for the building up of the flock for what? For the work of the ministry. So what is ministry? What does ministry mean? Well, the idea of a minister, Paul says that we are, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that we are ministers. Let me read it. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves. You ever struggle with being sufficient? Lord, I'm just not good enough to do this. I'm I'm not sufficient for this. You know that that's one of the truest things you'll ever tell yourself. You are not sufficient. I tell the Lord that every Sunday. I tell him all during the week, every Sunday, Lord, I am not sufficient for this. I cannot do this. And at that point, I'm in the best place I can possibly be before I attempt to do this. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent for what? To be ministers of a new covenant. To be ministers of a new covenant. What is a minister? It's the word diakonese. You say, that sounds just like the word for deacon. It is. 
means a servant. Means a servant. We're servants of the Lord. And in that service, each of us have, have a, a little bit different bent and a little bit different gifting, a little bit different temperament. We're, we're the only, do you know that as a believer, you are the only person on the planet that can do for the kingdom of God what you can do? Because you are the only you that God has to work with. Well, what is the ministry? If we're, we're ministers and ministry is the carrying out of the work of a minister. Ministry is Greek word diakonia, which if diakonese means servant, diakonia means service. Ministering, especially to, to those, especially used of those who execute the command of others. So if we are in the ministry, we are under compulsion, of, under a command from another. Who is that other? That other is the, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called us all to be ministers. He's called us all into ministry or service to him. It is used, this word uh, diakonia is used of those who by the command of God proclaim and promote religion among men. We are all called to ministry for Jesus Christ. We are all called as ministers of Jesus Christ. None of any greater importance than was the minister known as John the Baptist. Looking at John the Baptist's ministry philosophy, or as some have put it, the baptizer, or as R.C. Sproul used to say tongue-in-cheek, John the Presbyterian. John the baptizer we are looking at the baptizer's ministry philosophy today. Let us read. Then we will pray and petition this one who has called us as ministers to guide and direct, to cajole and comfort us this day, to bring correction where necessary, instruction, admonition. John writes, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because waterful was, water was plentiful there. I don't know what waterful is. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Pray with me. 
Father, as we open your word together this day, we pray that you will give us hearts of affection toward you, an affection toward your word, a desire not only to know what it says, but a desire to know how it applies to us, that you will take this word of the living God and apply it in every heart and grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For some, that will mean bringing them into the kingdom, birthing them from above and giving them eyes to see and ears to hear for the first time the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For the remainder of us, it will mean that that we will need to be brought into a greater understanding of who you are, a greater understanding of what is our responsibility as ministers of Christ. We pray that you will accomplish the impossible here. With all of the flowery words that man can conceive, with all of the things that I could possibly have to say this day, none would be of any benefit outside of your Holy Spirit's enabling. I petition you to make me sufficient, make me competent as a minister of Christ in this place to these people, not pointing to myself, But as the baptizer said, that I would point to you, the great bridegroom of the church. And we will see you with a greater clarity this day than we ever have. This is our prayer. It is our confident plea. As we have boldly approached your throne. And recognizing with every step that it is not on our behalf that we are here. It is because of the road that has been paved for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a life we could never live to attach a righteousness of God to our lives that will remain forevermore and to have died a death that we could never die vicariously for each that will put their faith and trust in him, becoming our Savior and our Lord. It is for his glory that we have met and it is in his all-sufficient name that we pray. Amen. Looking at the baptizer's ministry philosophy, we'll see three things. In, in verses 22 to 24, there is a new arrangement. A new arrangement. John is turning a corner here. There's something changing in Jesus' life, in John the Baptist's life, in the, in the, the life and times in the ministry of John the Baptist because now the, the bridegroom is on the scene. In verses 25 to 26, we will see an old adversary. Then we will see in verses 27 to 30, a noble answer. A new arrangement. There will be a separation. An old adversary. We see competition. Competition fueled by envy, as we will see. And then a noble answer that comes out in exaltation of another. And all of these are key for you and I as we come to this passage that John has recorded for us. Let us look first at verses 22 to 24 at this new arrangement, this separation that will take place here. We're going to see in this separation there will now be a primary, a secondary, and then an allusion to the intensity of the preaching of John 
the Baptist, the ministry of the baptizer. There, there is a primary and a secondary. Let us first look at, at the primary and this arrangement, this separation. There's now going to, to no longer be an equality. There will be a separation and one will be the primary and the other will fade into the secondary role. Up until now, John the Baptist has been in the primary role. He has been the only prophet in Israel for over 400 years. He has had a popularity and an excitement and exuberance in the people. It has already been said of John the Baptist by those in Jerusalem, in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are talking to one another and said, look, all of Jerusalem is going to this man. Everyone is going to him. And now we're no longer the popular ones. Well, at that point, John the Baptist had been elevated. But John the Baptist tells them from the beginning, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make, make ready the way of the Lord. It was never about John. He never, never thought it was about him. Now he is facing the time where the reality of his depreciating role has begun. Up until now, he has been the most popular man in all of Israel. He has followers of his own that we will see in a moment are very loyal to him. But another has come on the scene. The one that he was sent to be the forerunner of. The one that he was sent to proclaim ahead of time. And now it is time for John to see his role diminish. Listen to Dr. Sproul this morning talk about egos and the male ego and the female ego and the fragility of, of an ego. John the Baptist was maybe the best man that ever lived, as Jesus said, but he was not a man without an ego. He was a man that had to face this depreciating role And he faced it in a way that was beyond admirable. He faced it in a way that is only explainable by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this man to have dealt with this this way. This new arrangement is going to set one as a new primary and the old primary is now the new secondary. Verse 22, we see the primary. It says, after this, after what? After all that has gone before, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's come for the first of four Passovers that he will experience in Jerusalem as the, the uh, marked out representative of God. This was not the first time he had been to Jerusalem, but this was the first Passover that he had spent as the minister of the new covenant. He is coming out as in, in his role of ministry and the first thing that he does is go to the temple and drive out all of the money changers you remember when we went through that in chapter two he's driven them out with a cord made of whips and said you'll not turn my father's house into a place of merchandise he has instantly become infamous everyone knows who he is now he is performing miracles in jerusalem he has had this conversation with Nicodemus. He has become so well known that Nicodemus comes either on his own accord or with the blessing and and expectation of the Sanhedrin. He has come to ask these questions. After all of this is done, Jesus does not stay in Jerusalem. After these things, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. They went into the areas around uh, around Jerusalem, in, in the part, the southern part of Israel that is known as Judea. And he went out where, the, where the, the Jordan River is. Effectively, he was out where John the Baptist had been. 
So he has moved in effectively on John the Baptist territory. You know how territorial people are. Wait a minute. That, that's my place. That's where I was. I was here first. You're creeping in on my territory. This is a very primary place to have a ministry because it is around the holy city. It is around the most important city in, in all of the world as far as God is concerned. It is around the most important city as far as the Israeli people are concerned. And he has moved his ministry from the area of Galilee. He has come down from Galilee to Jerusalem. And now they have moved out for the time being for an extended period of time. But they will eventually move from there back north when, when things begin to heat up politically. He'll move back to Galilee. But for now, he is around the city. He is with his disciples. Look what it says here. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them. Now, this word remained is an interesting word, and it's, it's, it's very descriptive. It means to rub together, to put together in, in close proximity and rub together. It is used of rubbing of shoulders together as those that are working together. I don't know how many of you have ever been on a job where you had to, to get that close to your coworker to, to get a job done. That's kind of not the norm today. It's not OSHA approved. But this speaks of, a, of, of, of an intimacy of, of objective. They're all going toward the same objective. And it's as though Jesus is rubbing shoulders with the disciples and with all of the people that are coming to him. He is, Christ is rubbing off onto them. He has to take time with these men to prepare them, to teach them, to, to tell them how to perform and how to carry on and carry out the ministry that he's going to leave to them. He didn't just throw them out in this. In, in the modern day, we, people take an entrepreneurial approach to church and they just decide, you know what? I feel like I want to be a preacher. In fact, I feel like an apostle. And you know what? If I'm an apostle, woman, you're my you're, you're, you're my first lady. You're my apostolette. We're going to be the apostle and the first lady, and we're going to rent a building, and we're going to start a church. That is in no way biblical. Now, you can call it a church if you would like, but you cannot refer to that as a group of the ecclesia. And Jesus didn't start that way. Jesus takes these men, he is, he's rubbing off on them. He's, he's taking the time to, to ingrain in them what is going to be necessary to be a follower of Christ, to be the apostles. You understand that we meet and we conduct church according to what this book has to say. This book was written by the men that Jesus rubbed shoulders with. They were capital A apostles of whom there are no more. And they became capital A apostles because of the time that they spent with him. They're rubbing shoulders with him. You'll notice John the Baptist isn't in this list. John said, I knew Jesus and I knew something was special, but I did not know that he was the Messiah until I baptized him and saw the dove descend from heaven. Because the father told me that when you see the spirit descend and remain on him, that is the one. And as soon as he declares him to be the one, they separate. <laughs> and as they separate, he is now has a secondary role to continue to point to the other one. And you can see that if, 
If John the Baptist had the wrong attitude, then the wrong actions are going to come out of him and come out of his ministry. And at that point, he would become a detriment to the ministry of the Messiah rather than an asset. So as he is separated, we'll see where he went in a moment. As, as he's separated, he's still pointing people back. It's a diminishing role, but it is not completely annihilated yet. It says that he has this extended time of intense ministry with these men. He, he remained with them, and it says, and was baptizing. Now, this is the word baptizo. It was used in, in some specific ways. It was used of dyeing clothes. You know how you dye clothes? I know how you can undye clothes. You can spray it with bleach. But the way that you dye clothes is you, Im- you, you, Im- you sprinkle it or you immerse it. <clears throat> Interesting fact it was used of the idea of a sunken ship now does a ship that has been destroyed sunken or has it been splattered it is used in the realm of pickling any of you do any pickling in here no one come on man somebody i know cliff pickles some stuff joe and stacy pickle some stuff i had a buddy who used to pickle quail eggs that's today bon, buddy. My daddy is on what, what I can only describe as an evolutionist diet <clears throat> right now. It's a, he's a, on a carnivore diet. He's not eating any vegetables. And uh, one of the guys he listened to said, well, you know, vegetables don't like you to eat them, so they do things to get you to stop eating them. I said, brother, Brussels sprout ain't got to do nothing but be there. I ain't eating it. A carrot, I don't care if it's really, if it's peeled, I can eat that, you know. There's some stuff I'm not eating, I'm not that, a turnip, ain't been there yet. Now, I understand, you put enough butter and sausage on rocks, I'll just about eat it, so. I was telling daddy about pickling quail eggs. He said, How's a quail egg compared to a chicken egg? Well, to start with, it's smaller, but boy, it tastes way more better. He said, really? I was telling him, and and he can eat eggs on this carnivore diet he's on. So I said, uh, said, I'll tell you what. I said, my buddy brought me some eggs. Liz will remember this. He brought me 1,200 quail eggs. And said, uh, I'll just tell you now, the key to pickling quail eggs is after you boil them, you got to peel them. The key is to eat less than you peel while you're peeling. I said, okay, that's funny. He was right. I'm looking at 1,200 eggs in there, and he told me how to shake them, and just this ridiculous little thing we went through. And I'm peeling them. I, could, I bet I could have ate 500 of them. So I'm telling my daddy this, and I said, you know, if you can get your hands on good pickled quail eggs, you'll never be the same. And he hung up the phone with me in about a minute and went to town to buy some. That's how intrigued he was by that. But when you pickle quail eggs, what do you do with that? If you can keep from eating them all while you peel them, do you spray them with? Mm -mm. You put them all the way down in there. And if you're smart, you put some jalapenos and maybe a little bit of garlic for some of y'all. 
This word baptizo is used for pickling things. It is only, I want to be on record for saying this, it is only European church tradition that confuses the meaning of baptizo from full immersion to sprinkling. Jesus is baptizing, and it's the same baptism that John the Baptist was exercising. There is going to be a discussion that comes up in verse 25 between a Jew and John the Baptist disciples over purification. Now, the reason that it's over purification is because in the temple, they would purify the utensils and they used the word baptizo when they would wash the utensils in the water. Now, do you think that their purifying of those utensils took a little bit of water or a lot of water? Now, back to the topic at hand. They're baptizing people. Jesus has, and his men have moved into the Judean countryside, and they're baptizing. He has become the primary. We see the secondary is now John. It says, John also was baptizing near Anon, at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized. So there is still this preliminary baptism taking place. It is, it is a baptism of repentance, a baptism of preparation. This is not Christian baptism that has not been introduced yet. This is not post-faith baptism. This is a baptism of repentance for the Israeli people to get their hearts prepared so that they begin to recognize that the Messiah is coming not to defeat the Romans for them politically and economically. The Messiah is coming to pay their debt to God to save them eternally and spiritually. And to recognize that the bad news is you are not good enough on your own. That is what this baptism of repentance is. It says that John the Baptist went to Anon near Salim. Now, we don't know precisely where that is. As you can imagine, 2,000 years of history, little areas have changed. Little, little hamlets and villages have, have kind of gone uh, ghost town and, and, and people have moved around. But their best estimation is that it is in the northern area of the Jordan River, just south of the Sea of Galilee. That is far north of the, of the Judean countryside. That is north of Samaria, or in northern Samaria, southern Galilee. It says that, that he is there, and he is at Anon. And what is interesting about the, the name Anon is the name of an area near Salim. The name Anon is translated either as abundance of springs or double springs, an excess of water. And one of the places that they think it is, there are pools that have developed because the springs are flowing all the time. There was a lot of water. Why would you need a lot of water? You got to dunk a lot of people. There's plenty of water in, in Anon. John still at this point has a following for now. John's not up there by himself. He has disciples with him. It says that, that people are coming to him and people are being baptized by him. And as we'll see, he does have some disciples. There is still a ministry for John the Baptist, but it is no longer the primary. It is now the secondary. 
He is in a place that is not down close to the city. It is in, not in close proximity to the, the holy city or really any other big city. There's less population. There's less influence. There's less of everything for him there as far as uh, from an ego perspective. But he is there doing the will of God, carrying out the ministry of Jesus Christ. It says that he is, he is there. He is still preaching. He is still baptizing. And he is still pointing to the, to the Messiah. Now, at the end of, well, it's actually in what is verse 24. Most of your Bibles is probably in parentheses. It, it, that's accurate. It should be in parentheses. We've seen the primary and the secondary. We see here the intensity of John the Baptist. And it's interesting that a man who, is, who knows that he's on his way out, seems like he would finally start to cool off a little bit. Well, you know, if I don't, if there's really not all that much pressure on me, I can kind of, I can take a back seat and kind of slow down and don't have to be quite as intense. I don't have to push quite as hard. That's not what we see from the ministry philosophy of the baptizer. He's a man with great intensity, great fervor. He has a great drive. He is driven to see that what the Lord has given him to do is carried out with, with the best that he can offer. We, we see a fervency in this intensity. He says, that John has not yet been put into prison. And you say, well, how does that say he was fervent? Because he's not in prison, but he will be. And the fervency is, is delineated here because of why he is put in prison. John the baptizer is put in prison for preaching. He's put in prison for preaching. Matthew chapter 14 tells us of John having been imprisoned by Herod, Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great, one of his grandsons. He had four sons, not his grandsons, he was one of his, his four sons. One was named Philip, one was Herod. I forget what the other two were, it's not relevant right now. But Philip had a wife named Herodias, who was his half-sister. Yeah, said it right. He had a wife that was his half-sister. Well, either she didn't like him a lot, or... She liked his brother better, and his brother liked her better than his brother. So his brother Herod married his half-sister wife Herodias. So now she's been married to two different brothers that are her half-brothers. And she has a daughter named Salome, who is a chip off the old block. And at a, at a great feast that Herod is having for his birthday, you can imagine what debauchery would have been taking place at this. And in a drunken stupor, in a very lustful condition, he offers to give Salome whatever she wants, up to half of his kingdom. And she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she said it loud enough for everybody there to hear, and he was compelled by peer pressure enough to go have John the Baptist's head removed and brought to him on a platter at his birthday party. What a special group of people that was. Now, the reason that he puts this here is because in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12 and in Mark chapter 1 verse 4, it tells us that John the Baptist was imprisoned and then they, they give the description of Jesus' ministry. So it, it, it would seem as though John the Baptist was immediately arrested and taken off the scene, but he wasn't. Wouldn't be very long because his ministry was very short. It wouldn't be long after this, but it was not immediate. This took place... What is about to be described to us from beginning in verse 25 
is what happened in the life of John the Baptist just before he was in prison. And the reason he was in prison for preaching is because he went to Herod and told Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He didn't even get into the fact that it's your half-sister and all the other shenanigans that went on with this. It is not lawful. You claim to be the leader of the Israeli people. You cannot act like this. And they arrested him and beheaded him. You know, Adrian Rogers said a long time, the problem with most preachers today is that nobody's trying to kill them. That was not true of John the Baptist. Matthew and Mark don't record this interval, but John does. And he puts this in here because his gospel was written long after theirs. And he just puts this connotation in there and say, John, there was, a, there was an interim of John's ministry that, was, that this happened in just before he was arrested. Okay. That's the new arrangement. We see the, the, there's a new primary. There's now a secondary and the intensity of that secondary is never went away. He, he, was, he had an intensity for the service of the Lord no matter who was above or below or around him. He was more concerned with what God had given to him. Dr. Sproul challenged us this morning as, as spouses. He said, what would it do for your marriage if you quit looking at what it says for your husband to do and you do what it says for you to do? What would it do for your marriage if you quit looking at what your, life, your wife is supposed to do and you focus on what you're supposed to do? Because what you're supposed to do is not for your own aggrandizement. It's for the glory of God. Woman, I'm going to sacrifice for you no matter what. Boy, I'm going to submit to you no matter what. Even though you'll never be worth it, I'm going to love you and I'm going to submit to you. What if we did that? What would happen to our marriages? But what do we do? Well, you know, it's still it's not as good for me as it could be. Start hanging a lip. That happens in ministry too. And it could have happened from John the Baptist, but it didn't. His fervency never waned because his objective was the glory of another. And your objective in this life, whether you are a spouse or a child, whether you're an employee, an employer, if you are a believer, your objective in this life is to make another look good. And it's not the one that you're looking at in the mirror. I told the elders three and a half years ago that I was going to go to work. And I was going to work for a member of this church. And I said, my first and foremost expectation and responsibility there is to make him look as good as I possibly can for the glory of God. And that's been my philosophy. I, I, if, if you look at, at what you do from that lens, from that perspective, it takes all of the pressure off. You don't have to worry about what is it going to do for me? How am I going to like it? You might not like it. Pretty sure John the Baptist didn't like this. I know he didn't like being in prison. He was, it was a mixed bag on being beheaded because to be beheaded wasn't all that exciting, but to be with the Father was. You don't have my head, I'm going to heaven. It says the disciples came and got his body. It doesn't mention his head. He's not worried about that. Catholic Church has about 15 different John the Baptist heads around the world probably. as some relic. But I'll tell you what, the Lord Jesus Christ knows where it is. And one day he's going to reunite that body with that head and give him a body fit for heaven. And that's what had John captivated. Not what's going on in, in Anon and Salim or the Judean hillside. I want God to be glorified no matter the cost. That is his ministry philosophy. Let's move from the new arrangement to an old adversary. An old adversary. This is not new. It comes out in the form of competition. Competition. 
And it's a competition that is fueled by the real adversary, envy. Now, some would like to make envy and jealousy synonymous, and they typically can be two sides of the same coin, but the Bible never says that God is envious, but it does say that Yahweh is jealous. Jealousy has more to do with wanting to keep what is yours and guard it. You can be a jealous husband and not be an envious husband. And I'll tell you, if, 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 if you claim to be a man and you are not protective of your woman... You need to have your man card checked. That is my wife. And the man or the group of men that mess with her get to deal with me. And I know some politician one time said that hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned, and I understand. Solomon said it's better to live on the corner of a rooftop than in the house with a brawling and quarrelsome woman. We understand all of that, but I got to tell you this. A jealous husband will end your life. And a jealous husband is not necessarily an envious husband. Envy is not looking at something that is yours that you want to protect. Envy is looking at something that someone else has and wanting to have that instead of them have it. And what we see here is the old adversary of envy that created a spirit of competition. Competition on the football field is a beautiful thing to me, especially when my team wins. Competition in ministry is a horrible thing. Friends, it's not about elevating me over you or you over me. It's about elevating Christ. And that is what John the Baptist is about to have to deal with this in the ranks of the men that are following him. And it's not just the men that are following him. It is one of the greatest adversaries that he has had up to date has sent their emissary. So their emissary and his disciples come to him and he has to handle this properly. And gives us great insight into ministry philosophy for a believer. In verse 25, we see a subversive plot. In your English Standard Version, it says, now a discussion arose between some. And that's okay. That, that gives you the, the, a, a clear transition from, from what he, he's just outlined in verses 23 to, in, uh, 22 to 24. But the word here should be therefore. Because there is this new arrangement, there's been this split, there's a new primary, a new secondary, and there is an intensity in this secondary that maybe we can twist a little bit to get what we want out of it. Because of all of that, a discussion arose. This was no discussion. This is a subversive plot. This is an intense word. It does technically mean discussion, but it's a discussion that would have been more of a dispute or a quarrel. There is a dispute that, that happens between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Between John's disciple and a Jew. This is, this is John's clue to us. This is a Jew. Uh, several commentators say, well, this would have been somebody that had been to Jesus and has come to John and said, well, what's the difference in what the two of you were doing? John doesn't use the word Jew that way very often. It is typically John's clue. When we see the, the word Jew, capital capital J in John's gospel, that is pointing to the religious sect in Jerusalem who were no friend of the ministry 
of Jesus or of John the Baptist. So this Jew has come and has started a dispute with John's disciples over purification. This is not a genuine questioner. John's clue here is telling us that this is a saboteur. There are two ministers that the Jews see in Jesus of Nazareth here in Judea and John the Baptist in, in Anon near Salim. How do we get to both of them? We can't really get to either one of them. Their people are too loyal. But maybe, maybe we can divide and conquer. If we can do to them what people can do to us. You see politicians do this all the time. They'll try to do and accuse other people of what they are doing and, and to, to get them on the defense. There's a very political air to what is going on here. They want to keep their political power over these people. If we can divide these two, then we can conquer the both of them. They're both against us. Problem they have is that both of them are for Yahweh. And God has a way of accomplishing what he has set out to do in spite of the whole world being against it. The cross of Calvary is living proof of it. A subversive plot creates an opportunity for a sinister portrayal. Look at the beginning of verse 26. This is some of the most petty language that you will ever read in the Scripture. This is on par with the pettiness of the Israelis that we read from Numbers chapter 11 earlier. Oh, that God has sent us out here to die. Wouldn't it have been better just to stay in Egypt? They're trying to push God and and manipulate the Creator. And what did it do? Kindled the fire of God's wrath and began to consume the outside of the camp. And their tune changed pretty quick. Oh, wait, maybe we made a mistake. Moses, pray for us. For now, for now. We want some quail. We didn't get to the next, the, the next chapter. The quail came in, the, the, the next part of that passage, and they just went out and collected all day long, and they ate it until they were sick. Oh, man, the flesh is never satisfied. We had too much meat. It's too much now. Okay, wait a minute. God brought it in. Can you imagine a pile of quail two and a half feet high? Joe and I had a discussion with a guy recently talking about uh, the quail. And and God sent them the quail, but they had to go get it. And he said, have you ever had to try to catch a quail? (laughs) Well, the first first batch of them just came. It just piled up on the ground. They just had to go out and get them. But we see a pettiness. in how they responded to what God had done for them. And we see that same kind of pettiness coming out of these followers of John the Baptist. Now, before we get too, far on, too much on our high horse and look down our nose at the disciples of John the Baptist, remember, you're just like them. And I'll, I can prove to you that you're just like them if, if you give a little bit of time. Start comparing this church to other churches around here. Now, I'm giving you a little bit of a glimpse into my own heart by saying that. Look at this sinister portrayal. They come to him, Rabbi, Rabbi. Now, you know, if they got close with John the Baptist, they didn't all just call him Rabbi. All of you call me pastor? No. When I'm in this pulpit, yeah, you can. When we're out and about, you run into me in, 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 in Walmart, you run up to me, oh, pastor, pastor. You will now, you bunch of curmudgeons. I know what's coming now. 
I'll never live that down. Matt, we're taking that off the recording. I can't go to another birthday party now. No, you come up, call me by name. Whatever name comes to mind. It's, you know, they would have gotten comfortable with John. But they come to him, oh, rabbi, rabbi. You know how when your kids come to you, when they really want something from you, daddy. Daddy. Well, the two squirts really can't say it much different than that, so whatever they say is okay. But the older girls come, daddy. Other than that, hey, old man. Yeah. Enough about me. <clears throat> Chickens are coming home to roost. I'm living with it. They come to him, Rabbi. He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, behold, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. A couple of interesting notes here. You say, well, how is that a sinister portrayal? I'll tell you why. Do you hear Jesus' name here? Do you hear the Lamb of God? Do you hear any title of Jesus here? No. They're speaking of him in the third person. It is a, they're disregarding him. He who was with you across the Jordan, this guy that came in, he was riding on your coattails. Now he's up there doing his own thing. He's entrepreneurializing it himself. That's how they look at it. Just like Joshua comes to Moses and said, Hey, Moses, Eldad and Medad are down there prophesying in the camp. Stop them. That's what they're saying here. Hey, you need to go stop this guy, this whatever his name is, this carpenter cat that showed up. Now he's taking it on himself, and he's baptizing more than us. This Johnny come lately, and, and they use this expression. This baffles me. But it shouldn't, because I understand how the flesh works. And these guys are emotional. And emotion is never rational. You, you ever get somebody who wants to cross-stitch a pillow for you, Chad? Just tell them put that. Emotion is never rational. If you know somebody that does good work on marble with a hammer and chisel, get them to make a plaque for you to hang on your wall. Our emotions were given to us by God, but that's the first place that we are led away. All of us. And these guys are living proof of it. Look at what they say. To whom you bore witness. What did John bear witness? Do you remember what John said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the way back in chapter 1. The next day he said it again, and two of his disciples, he said it to them, and they left him and followed Jesus. That was James and uh, that was Andrew and, and John. The one that you bore witness to, they can't even say his name. This was very telling. They forgot what John called him. They forgot what happened. That Some left, some stayed, and these men were loyal to John the Baptist. And their loyalty to him created a jealousy and an envy that was very, very ugly. They should have been glad. Now, I'll just give you a little insight into my own struggle. I have plenty of them. 
probably a lot like yours, and some of them are worse. And trust me, you do not envy the struggles that I have. And I don't envy yours either. But Paul faced this very same thing. Go and you work, you give your life for the gospel, and the Lord's blessing seems to be in other places than, than where you are. And you, you want to you look at it as, oh, well, why is mine not like theirs? Uh, if you've got the one the Lord gave you, then you're right where you need to be. Quit griping, get to work. Philippians chapter 1, Paul's telling the Philippians about what's going on in his life. In verse 18, he's ta- listen to this. I'm going to start in verse uh, 15. This is remarkable. This gives us great insight into the, the, the heart of Paul and the heart of John the Baptist because it's the same Holy Spirit-induced ministry perspective. Ministry philosophy. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. What? Preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They're trying to keep up with Paul. They want to go out and they want to make, they want to be better than Paul. So I'm going to take Paul's message. I'm not stuck in the prison for one. I am a far better uh, articulator than he is. I have better charisma, better looks, better whatever. Fill in the blank. I'll take it for myself. And if it gave him that much, then I'll take that much for me. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those that are preaching out of rivalry, they proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Can you imagine somebody preaching the gospel to make another person miserable? Paul said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exactly that was happening. What then, Paul says? That's a great question. Well, what now? How do we do this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Same attitude here from John the Baptist. These guys should have been glad. They come to Moses. Moses, you need to shut these guys down now. Moses said, shut them down. I wish all of God's people had this level of the Holy Spirit and the capacity to serve him that way. I don't need to be elevated. It says in chapter 3 that Moses was the meekest man who, on the face of the planet. Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. And you see it in instances like that in, in Numbers 11 and Numbers 12. You understand that on the heels of them getting the quail after God has killed the outside of the camp, he has burned them with the fire of his indignation. The beginning of chapter 12 is that now Miriam and Aaron decide that they want to lead instead of Moses. You talk about some hard-hearted people that are just like you and me. And they don't have the right ministry philosophy. It was about themselves. They're concerned more for themselves than they are for the glory of another, more for themselves than the glory of any other, whether it be another person or the Lord himself. In the end of verse 26, we see this sensational pageantry. You can just see them grab their chest. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Look at what he's doing to us. They're doing everything they can to get John the Baptist to elevate them and to denigrate Jesus and the Jewish leaders and everybody else. We're the only ones doing what is right. And to his credit, the baptizer shows us the way to handle it. He says two things. We don't have time to unpack them all today. We'll come back and finish this next week. But he says two things in verse 27 and in verse 30. In verse 27, he says, a man has nothing. 
except what has been given him from heaven. A person can receive nothing unless it is given to him from above, unless heaven sends it. James the apostle said that every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of shifting. God is the same all of the time. And God is bringing into your life, I don't know what's going on in your life, God is bringing into your life right now what is the very best for you by his estimation for eternity. And some of you are dealing with some hard stuff. Some of you know about it. Some of you don't. Some of you have been open about it. Some of you are, are wrestling with it on your own. That's fine. But understand that what God brings into the life of his people, the life of a believer, what befalls that believer, has been sifted through the hands of his mercy and his love to bring about his very best for you. And it may not be what you would ask for if you could. But it is by his definition the very best. And John would never have asked to have been pushed out of the limelight and put in second place. And now to be surrounded by all of these people who are trying to devour one another and have to set these things right. And he says, listen, this is the perspective that you must have. A person cannot receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. You can't take your next breath unless it's given to you from heaven. And if ever there was a verse to live by, it is verse 30. He must. There are three musts in John chapter 3. There is the must for the sinner. Chapter 3 and verse 7. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must. Not you should, not you can, not be a good idea, not my recommendation. You must be born again. Verse 14. Because of your sin and my sin, verse 14 is true. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It was not an accident that Jesus died on that cross. It was necessary. It's what he came to do. You must be born again. Jesus must be lifted up on the cross and in your heart. In verse 30, this is the must of the servant. This is the must of the minister. This is the must of the nursery worker. The must of the Sunday school teacher, vacation Bible school teacher. This is the must of the vacation Bible school helpers that packed all of the snacks. This is the must of every mother, every wife, every father, every husband. This is the must of every child. This is the must of every believer that he the Lord Jesus Christ must increase in your life. And you must decrease. This is why he sends what he does into your life. Because there's too much of you residue left in you. There's too much of you residue left in you. And he is working to push that out and cause that to decrease. And he is filling the void with Christ's likeness so that he increases in your life, in your heart, in your soul.
And friends, the first step to that is to bow your knee to him in repentance and faith and receive the salvation of God. That is the first step. There is no further step of your decreasing or of his increasing. The first, foremost, necessary must of your life is that you must be born again. You must be saved. You must be. Friends, when he saves a person, it's not like you saving the dishes at your house. My woman saves the dishes, she puts them in the cabinet real neat, closes that door, and they're there until she needs them. But when the Lord Jesus Christ saves a person, he brings them into his bosom, and they become the object of his affection. They become the object of all that he does, so that Paul can say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God is at work in all things for the good of those who love God, who are the called According to his purpose, those that he has called into his kingdom as his ministers, he is at work in all things so that he might increase and you must decrease. I could go on and you know that's true. But if you stand, we're going to pray. If you want to talk to me about what it means to be saved, I've got all afternoon. Don't leave here today out of fellowship with with the Creator. Don't leave this day wondering if you're saved. Don't leave this day assuming that you're a believer. I thank you for your time. I remind you of the Adventure Club meeting right after service. Brother Chad, would you close in prayer for us, please?